Jazz Alternatives. Uh, I'm Mitch Goldman. We do call this show Deep Focus, and you are about to find out why. I am thrilled, delighted to have a guest back in the studio. It's been a couple few times. We've not done, we've done this once, but Mm -hmm. we've done this. Yeah, we've done this. A bunch. For decades. Yes. And Eons, <laughs> eternities, vast distances. Echoing through across oh. millennia. Absolutely. And it seems like just the other day. <laughs> it does. Philip Johnston, welcome back to the studio. Thank you, Mitch. Good to be here. It's a thrill, especially because uh, you are not here all the time. So That's we... true. Sometimes I'm somewhere else. Indeed. But you're here now. That's true. You got some gigs. We're going to talk about that. All right. And uh, who is our deep focus on tonight? Our deep focus is on on the very great Steve Lacey. It's quite a treat. It really is a treat because you have, and I'm not even being the least bit sly in saying, great wisdom and insight into his music. I'm really looking forward to unpacking this with you. Well, I'm a fan. And uh, we've got, this is also a thrill, we've got some music that nobody's ever heard. Not even the people who were there they when it was know. first performed. Well, maybe them, because it's at a really cool venue. I'm sure you have been to the BIM House in Amsterdam many times. Uh, I've played there many times. I know you have. And one of the things I really like about that place, the audience is like right on top of the musicians mm. in a kind of cool way. Mm. So put yourself there in your mind. And uh, we're going to hear Steve Lacey on soprano saxophone with Enrico Rava, trumpet and flugelhorn, Roswell Rudd on trombone, Mal Waldron piano, what a rhythm section, Reggie Workman on the bass, Andrew Cirillo on the drums. Music from Steve Lacey. The program's called Roundabout Monk on WKCR. Thank you. 
You are in Amsterdam. It's winter. It's February. February 27th of the year 2000. And uh, we're at the BIM House. Steve Lacey leading a group uh, program titled Roundabout Monk. And, well, that song's a good example why. The show is called Deep Focus. I'm Mitch Goldman. And an excellent example why is Philip Johnston, who's here in the studio with us. And um, where to begin with all this? So many, so many delicious nuggets mm. in this show. And that just that track, <clears throat> just that track spins off into so many different directions. That tune, those musicians. It makes me think of the connection between the tune Epistrophe and more modern musicians. I mean, the first thing I think of is the recording by Eric Dolphy from his Last Date record, where he played it with the young Misha Mengelberg and Han Benek. Speaking of who was Netherlands. Pl- who was playing bass? I can't um, remember. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, and he played bass clarinet, I think, and they played uh, Epistrophe. Somehow that tune... Well, I think it seems obvious why it's extremely chromatic. Has reached out to musicians through the uh, through the generations. Obviously, everybody's played Monk, but you know some of his tunes are very, very straight ahead, and more normal people play them all the time. You know, your your Blue Monk and your things like that. But uh, Epistrophe is just such a totally weird tune. I mean, in a way, you can almost see Lacey's whole compositional style coming out of Epistrophe. What's different about that piece? Well, first of all, it's just very, like a bunch of monk tunes, it's very, uh, I wouldn't say cerebral exactly, though cerebral would also be true. But it's just got such incredible, uh, what would you call it, mathematics, architecture, physics? I mean, it's a line, which is very um, angular and chromatic that first goes in one direction and then goes in the other direction. Um, The chords are moving, two dominant seventh chords moving a half step apart, back and forth. It does that, then it moves up a step, I think, and does the same thing. Then it repeats it. Then it comes back. Um, And then the bridge is sort of a response to all of that, and then it repeats to that. So it's sort of like A, B, B, A, and then the bridge, which we could talk about too, but let's not, and then B, A. It's just so structural, and the line itself is so completely like the music that Steve Lacey would write for the rest of his life. It could be a Lacey tune, but obviously it was a Lacey tune before <laughs> but, there were any Lacey yeah, tunes. Monk, Monk got there first. I just, cer- certain things, you just see the roots of everything he was to do later. And, of course, he went on recording and playing that tune often with with the later uh, ICP Orchestra, with Misha Mengelberg and with Roswell Rudd and other groups he had. He came back to that again and again. And an and oft-told tale, which... I'll ask if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing of how the, the the fire that Monk lit under Steve Lacey and the the turn that he made in music. Mm. Well, I mean, 
again, there's so many connections here because there was the band. So Steve Lacey started out playing a lot of uh, traditional jazz, New Orleans jazz, early jazz. And then when he mo- he moved from there to playing with Cecil Taylor and Gil Evans, and, but at the same time really doing a deep study of the music of Thelonious Monk. And he had this band with Roswell Rudd where they learned every single Monk tune. And, and that, 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 that is a noble pursuit that an astute jazz professor might give to an advanced student now. Hmm, absolutely. I mean, that's... But, but at that know. time, that was not commonly done. I don't no. think people are kind of quite lit into how uh, how much was going on in Monk's music. Yeah, yeah. I think um, not the whole breadth of it, because even Monk rarely played most of his repertoire. If you look at the live recordings, he played the same dozen tunes or so for most of the last 20 years of his career. A lot of them he recorded, and then he never performed them again. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the tunes, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, he never did record. Uh, wow. The One of the ones that we did on, on the Micros Monk record, um, I can't think of the name of it. Um, anyway, uh, <clears throat> only... Um, Yeah, it was recorded by somebody else, but he never recorded. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. The point is, okay, we're back in... I thought the the point was getting sidetracked. We're... we're, uh, That's Monk's point. Oh. We're we're back with Lacey and Roswell Rudd, so they're just totally woodshedding all these Monk tunes and playing them at, you know, cafes and public libraries and dances and anywhere they could get a gig. And just one night, fortunately... Somebody turned on a tape recorder and recorded them playing these monk tunes, and that became the record School Days, which just became a tremendously um, influential record. I mean, I would say for myself, if there's one record that caused me to play the soprano saxophone, it would be that record School Days. Wow. Because it had Monk, it had Lacey, Roswell Rudd. I mean, I was listening to... um, Sidney Bechet and people like that also, like Lacey was. Anyway, now I'm getting off that track again. The point is uh, Steve Lacey dived deep into Monk's music and then eventually at a certain point for a pretty short time played with Monk and I think a quintet with Charlie Rouse and uh, became a regular member of his group for a while and then he was on one of those big band things. So he did have direct contact to the source of knowledge Although, how much knowledge that direct source might have shared? (laughs) Well, there's a little thing that's flying around the internet. You've probably seen it where he scribbled down on a piece of paper quotes that he got from... uh, I think someone else scribbled. Yeah. I think it was somebody, like one of the guys, I I suspect, I I looked into this at one point, that um, maybe I kind of got the sense somebody just said, uh, I got to write this down. Just wrote it on there. I don't know about that. I've seen the original piece of paper, and it looks like Lacey's handwriting because he wrote out a lot of his charts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you were saying I'm misconstrued. It's not necessarily stuff that he said to Lacey, but just that he said or he heard him say. Anyway, there's a lot of great uh, and completely opaque quotes 
in there. <clears throat> you can, uh, listeners, you can you can dig that up. Yeah, you could find that absolutely. If you Google Thelonious Monk notes, you'll probably find it pretty quickly mm. and well worth it. Yeah, there's some great stuff in there. Anyway, um, uh, then he continued to, you know, return to that repertoire for the rest of his career. And what period of time are we talking about? We're talking about starting in the 60s when he was, you know, maybe just out of his teenage years, his early 20s, up until when he passed away a few years ago. And this was, and, and at that time, Monk was at the height of his creative powers, still uh, emerging? Yeah, well, I don't know about emerging. Monk would have been, you know, already pretty was, established yeah, by true. that point. And then, of course, not that long after that, you know, retired, quote unquote, and quit playing and retired to the Baroness's crib and didn't really play anymore after that. But during that overlapping period, they did do some work together. And now this recording, skip ahead, it's the year 2000, which is relatively in this span contemporary time. But, uh, you know, these songs fit these guys like, you know, well-worn, comfortable clothing. They're not, uh, but they're still finding new things in it, I think. Mm, And mm. in playing with one another. Yeah. Well, this particular band is such a weird amalgam of different people. I mean, Lacey and Roswell had come back together again, you know, from the era of school days and then not played together for a while and had come back. Uh, Enrico Rava was from a different part of his life when he was playing hardcore improvised music in Italy in the 60s when he was a, uh, what do you call that, an immigrant. Expat, yeah. There, Um, Mal Waldron, he had a long relationship with, um, and um, and you were talking off mic about the two of them doing duet performances and and recordings they recorded together. Yeah, they they made a bunch of records with say a quartet or quintet. They made several duo records together. Um, they did a lot over the years, so obviously that was a real rich relationship. And then remind me, who's on bass and drums? Uh, oh, Andrew Cyril and, and Reggie uh, Workman. Reggie Workman. Killers. So they're coming from a whole other, you know, part of jazz history. Each of them, you know, kind of different. So it's qu- this is quite an amazing Congress of uh, Congress of the Birds. Yeah. Well, and to paraphrase something, I remember Roswell Rudd saying once upon a time. If you have musicians, he was talking about musicians from different traditions, which arguably this is or isn't, but uh, if they all know how to listen and know how to improvise, you've got music. Mm. And man, I don't think you could come up with a better recipe than what's happening on stage at the Bim House, February 27th, 2000. Should we give them a little more music? Let's listen. What do we got coming up? Um... The next tune that is coming up is Monk's Dream. Mm-hmm. Any, uh, do you want to set that up or, at all, or should we just... Monk's Dream. Monk's Dream is a, <clears throat> is a wonderful tune. How to put it into words. I mean, another thing that links Lacey and Monk together is this idea of the motif. They take a motif and they kind of vary it and develop it. Um, I think of the tune... 
uh, you know, I'm so bad with names, of Lacey's. Uh, he's recorded a bunch of times. Um, the Bath. Wow. The likelihood that I would remember <laughs> the name of that tune, even though I've played it myself a million times. The Bath is a tune that's in the key of C. The entire tune, it's really long. It never diverts from the diatonic key of C, yet he's constantly in developing this motif idea. Monk's Dream does the same thing, also in the key of C, and it takes this idea and it just, I think it departs from actually the key of C for like one or two pitches, but it takes the initial idea and just develops it through the A, and through the B, he takes it in a different direction. You see that? That's why the show's called Deep Focus. That's it. <laughs> there it is right there. That's it. Yeah, but we, we've been here a few minutes, and we're talking chromaticism yeah. and diatonicism. I'm, and, I'm with you, man. Yeah. Philip Johnston is our guest in the studio. So happy to have you here. Happy all, to be here. Oh, man. And all this great music. Uh, you also have the all-too-rare opportunity to hear Philip performing live. We're going to talk about that at the next break. And uh, let's go back to the Bim House in Amsterdam in 2000. Steve Lacey leading on the ensemble Roundabout Monk. It's Deep Focus. I'm Mitch Goldman. It's WKCR.
Don't be alarmed. They're still on the bandstand. We're at the BIM house.
Wow. Wow. Very, you know, the Dutch audience is great audience. That's another conversation maybe we'll mm. come back to in a little bit. You, If you're just joining us, well, the radio station's called WKCR. The program's called Deep Focus. Your host, Mitch Goldman, our guest tonight, Philip Johnston in the studio. And... Where are we? What's happening? What's going on? It just carried me off to some <clears throat> faraway place there. Well, we were just listening to uh, Mysterioso, certainly uh, an iconic monk tune. And uh, one, so I, I, I just want to catch people up if, if they're just joining us. I should have told you. So it's Steve Lacey. The program's called Roundabout Monk that he performed in the Bim House in Amsterdam, February of 2000. Enrico Ravo, Roswell Rudd. Rhythm section of Mal Waldron, Reggie Workman, Andrew Cyril. Hmm. And yeah, Mysterioso, please shed light. Uh, Mysterioso. So, Mysterioso is a blues. I mean, it brings me back to our earlier conversation about the roots of Steve Lacey's own compositions in the music of Thelonious Monk and the way he works with motifs and changing lines slightly, because this is another perfect example of that. It's a blues, but it doesn't swing. That's what's so weird about it and what's so lacy-like about it. Um, <clears throat> it's very sort of mechanical. And like a lacy tune, it takes this idea and then follows it through logically, but always going through, going to unexpected places. So it moves up in a series of sixths, walking up and down. Then it does the same thing up a fourth, down, excuse me, to the tonic, um, through the whole structure of the blues. But then when it gets to the, uh, where you'd have the five chord, all of a sudden it moves chromatically back and forth, which is just like the kind of typical weird thing that Monk does. His whole, he's sort of like a comedian in a way, not that his what he writes is funny, but that he sets up a tune to lead you to expect something to happen, and then he surprises you. He's like uh, he's like Steve Martin or something. Yeah. He or sets even, up a whole thing, and then right when you're waiting for the punchline, he does something different. He does that in a lot of his tunes. It kind of makes me think of like early, you know, W. C. Fields or yeah, yeah, Buster Keaton <clears throat> or something. That kind of. Uh, expectation and well that's one of the things that always drew me to the music of both Monk and Lacey and um, Herbie Nichols has this also they all have a humor to them it's not like a yuck 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 kind of humor I mean this is what we always end up getting into this conversation about the microscopic septet I mean what is the nature of humor in music it's not all you know uh dental floss and yellow right. snow. I mean, there's a kind of humor that is not really, it's more a kind of wry, um, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but a kind of irony that is not sarcasm, it's more appreciative of what you're being ironic about. Yeah, that, uh, well, and you're pointing out these conventions mm, exactly and asking the question 
do they belong? Do yeah. we need them? And are then, they useful? What and are then they? something unexpected yeah. happens. Yeah, so yeah. Mysterioso is a wonderful tune. And again, it's a tune that um, a lot of people have been drawn to, specifically us with the micros. We recorded it uh, on one of our early records um, before we... No, I think we, we recorded it on that Monk record that we made. And uh, I was just reflecting on, we have a new record out where we play mostly blues. It's called uh, Been Up So Long, It Looks Like Down to Me, The Micros Play the Blues. That's what brought me here. We played last night at Smalls, and we're playing uh, on Thursday at the Falcon, a little bit upstate. And there's a tune on that record by Joel Forrester uh, called Simple Minded Blues, which in a way could be a... Um, uh, description of Mysterioso. It's meant a little bit ironically because it's not simple-minded at all. It's quite sort of conceptual. Um, but Joel's tune is kind of like Mysterioso turned inside out. It's got also it also doesn't swing until the solos, and it's got a kind of programmatic quality to it. Uh, um, I'd think of it as homage, maybe. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And uh, and these guys have a lot of fun with this. I mean, they, it's the it's interesting because people sometimes when musicians play monk, they feel this well understandable reverence and uh, duty to these mm. pieces. And these guys seem to yeah sometimes not all the time. <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, uh, uh, the tune before Monk's Mood at the end they got into a whole you know, New Orleans type thing with, uh, I, I think it was Enrico Rava throwing in some kind of, sounded like uh, Warner Brothers Bugs Bunny yeah. kind of quote. And then on this one again, uh, Roswell was going deep, deep into like, just blowing everybody away with a serious blues trombone solo uh, that was so vocal. I, I also, I love in that free improv <clears throat> thing that they did, the way how immediate and easy it seems to be for Roswell Rudd and Steve Lacey to go to that uh, you know uh, Dixieland kind of improv role playing Mm. and I just it just sounds like a real delight that they have in playing off one another like that and everybody just falls into it yeah they do they're sort of like you know kind of one of the classic uh comedy duos, the two of them, the roles that they have, you know, like a Laurel and Hardy or a Martin and Lewis or any of the classic duos where each person, you know, they're foils for each other. Uh, um, Roswell Red being kind of very earthy and funky and Lacey being more, a little bit more reserved and cerebral and they just play off each other in a beautiful way. It's one of the great romances in musical history like uh, Lester Young and Billie Holiday in a way. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's uh, it, um, it's just such a delight hearing... Bromances, them. I guess you should say. Bromances of musical <laughs> yeah, history. Absolutely. You are listening to WKCR-FM New York, WKCR-HD1. Maybe you're finding us on WKCR.org. Either which way, the show's called Deep Focus... And uh, I'm Mitch Goldman. Philip Johnston is my guest. When you hear him say micros, that is the microscopic septet. Mm. Long-term hometown beloved heroes in uh, here in New York and especially here at WKCR. And uh, Philip, you are 
living elsewhere these days, so we don't get as many opportunities to hear the band as we once did. That's right. I live in Sydney, and I come to town a couple of times a year. And uh, so, yeah, if you missed Smalls last night, you blew it, but but uh, you can make your way. And I know we have listeners closer to there than here as well. You'll be at the Falcon on Thursday night. That's right. And uh, that's a pretty special venue. You know, I've never been there. I've heard great things about it for a long time, just because of the practicalities of my living overseas. Mostly when I come back, it's kind of the most I can do to organize a couple of gigs in town. I haven't really tried to stretch out. There's just too many other things to deal with. Uh, So this is kind of a rarity that we play beyond Manhattan and Brooklyn. So well, it's it is a beloved venue. People say it's admired. great. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, what's the the town it's in is Marlboro. Marlboro, Marlboro, New York. And I have a feeling, if you are within driving range of Marlboro, and you like this kind of music, you probably know the place already. Mm. But if you don't, check it out. The Falcon Thursday night would be a really fantastic. rare opportunity to hear the microscopic septet. That is always, always a treat. And then... And then... Tomorrow... Tomorrow night... Yes. For one set only, at 8.30, we're playing with the band from uh, Wordless, the project I did with Art Spiegelman recently. Uh, It's our second gig outside of uh, Wordless, and that we're playing at Barbez in Brooklyn, one set at 8.30, and uh, that's a wonderful band also with uh, um, Joe Feidler, great trombone player, um, Neil Kirkwood, wonderful pianist, um, <coughs> Rob Garcia on drums, and then Dave Hofstra and Mike Asham from the Micro. So that's the band that tours with the show, and we're doing a little thing on our own getting out there at Barbez tomorrow at 8.30. That should be fun. Yes, Philip Johnston, a couple of rare opportunities. And as somebody was mentioning today, music that is virtually unrecognizable to the Micros music. Yeah, you could catch both. They're completely different. You could go hit the road, bring your sleeping bag, sack out with your friends. It'll be like, I don't know what it would be like. It'd be great. My music often induces people to reach for their sleeping bag. <laughs> Tomorrow night, Barbez. Thursday night, The Falcon in Marlboro, New York. And uh, But right now, we are in the BIM house in the Nederlands in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Really cool venue that um, presents, a, to this day, a lot of great uh, improvised music and other music and every night of the week. And um, as I recall, I haven't been there in quite a while, but um, there's like a hangout drinky area in the outer part of it. And then there is. the performance space is kind of uh, sacred. You're, you're really, if you're in there, you are focused in right on what's happening on stage. Yeah, it's great. That's the new BIM house yes. that you're talking about. Yeah, since Isn't, they rebuilt it. But that's, <clears throat> I think... Even in 2000. Yeah, that was already the new BIM house. Because we were playing there with the Micros. I think our first tour in Europe was in 83 or something, and we played at the BIM house. That was the old BIM house. But when they rebuilt it, they built it exactly like 
the old BIM house, except, you know, a little nicer. Mm-hmm. It was cool. Um, but um, And I always found on the road, uh, audiences in Amsterdam were as cool as they came. As they are. responsive and in <clears throat> and aware. Well, you know, that's a funny thing that you should mention that, um, because the very first time we went, you know, the microscopic septet is kind of a rowdy kind of band, and we have these kind of very uh, devoted and vociferous fans, and usually our gigs were pretty, um, you know, there's a lot of participation of everybody in there, which was part of why it was a lot of fun. You know, we were in our 20s. We'd never been to Europe before, and we went and we played our first gig uh, in, um, can't remember, it wasn't in Amsterdam. It was in Holland. And uh, we went out and we played the set, and we were kind of nervous. We didn't know how we were going to do. And the audience was, you know, polite, you know, applauded, but Mm -hmm. very reserved. And we went backstage, and we just felt, oh man, we just we've totally bombed out here. They just hate us. And then the promoters came backstage, and they said, "Wow, I can't believe it. The audience went totally nuts over you guys. I've never seen them so wild and out of control." Because we weren't used to the whole northern uh, mm-hmm. European audience, but Amsterdam is sort of like to Holland the way New York City is to the rest of America. It's kind of its own thing, and the people there get quite a bit more loose than they do in Den Haag or Den Bosch. Um, Mm -hmm. Great audiences all around, but, you know, it's a different temperament. People in general are a little more uh, polite and reserved. Of course, until they start hitting the sauce, then they're like, I love you guys. (laughs) Or whatever else they might Amsterdam, <laughs> but well, in whatever the case, maybe it's just a wild exception. But tonight at the Bim House, tonight being February twenty seventh, two thousand, they are all over it. They're, yeah, they're they sound crazy. Like, yeah, they're loving it and they're driving the band, and the band knows it, and they're having a good time with it. Where's the set go next? The set goes to the tune Evidence. I mean, every one of these, iconic monk tune, evidence. It's written over the changes to uh, old standard called Just You, Just Me. But it's basically, I think, like it's monk comping made into a tune. That's mm. what it is to yeah, me. Yeah. And uh, like, it's really, there's no other tune quite like evidence in a way. It's just, it's Monk comping. He used to play Just You, Just Me as a standard, and I think he just took his comping and made it into a tune. You can do that when you're Thelonious Monk. You can do whatever (laughs) you want in this world. It is, the show is called Deep Focus. Philip Johnston is showing you exactly why. And uh, in case you missed it, tomorrow at Barbez, Thursday at the Falcon in Barbez in Brooklyn, Marlboro, New York is the Falcon on Thursday. Philip Johnston will be playing. But uh, the focus is on Steve Lacey's show, Roundabout Monk. Bim House in Amsterdam, we're listening to this live recording. Enrico Rava, trumpet and flugelhorn. Roswell Rudd on trombone. Mal Waldron, piano. Reggie Workman on the bass. Andrew Cyril on the drums. And uh, let's go back to Amsterdam. It's WKCR.
part one of this broadcast from April of 2017. Philip Johnston, my guest in the studio, our topic, Steve Lacey. And wow, we've got a fantastic set of live recordings. Philip is just as great an adept of this magnificent musician as anybody could ask for. You know, I just love this. This is why I do this show. These musicians have made lifelong studies of this field that I don't think there's a university that's teaching a class in Steve Lacey, but Philip Johnston has made a lifelong study of his work and drawn magnificent conclusions and information from that. I, I love I love going down the rabbit hole with these guys. I hope you're enjoying it too. Uh, there's two more parts, so check them out and listen. If you found this, I would love to know how you found your way to this, how you know about this program. Uh, we recently crossed over 10,000 total downloads, which is kind of a thrill to me, but I still don't know how people know about it. We've got people who have been listening to Terrestrial WKCR for years, but we've got listeners in over 40 countries, some far-flung folks. I salute you, and I'd uh, love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on Instagram. That's a good way to find us. We are deep underscore focus underscore podcast on Instagram. And uh, you can, if you just stumbled, bummed your way in here, you should know you can always find our our podcast on most podcasting apps. But you can always get us on our hosting site, which is mitchgoldman.podbean.com. Right then. Okay. Let's go on to part two. Part two, part three coming up. Glad you're along. 